Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today to worship you, to worship you in, in song and in praise and to worship you in the reading of your word. And we pray as we open the Bible that you would just draw our eyes and our hearts to you and the message that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're continuing on in a series uh, today going through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, going through the the message to the church in Pergamum. Um, And so I'm going to read through that letter and pray, and and we'll walk through it together. So if you want to find that in your Bibles as we begin here today, uh, that would be helpful. But let me read from uh, ESV, um, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In World War II, the the United States government came up with a program called V-Mail. And this was something that they developed to encourage people to write letters to soldiers, to encourage uh, fathers and mothers and wives and children and, and friends to write letters to, um, to soldiers who were fighting overseas. And, and they even came up with posters and all kinds of, of ways to inspire people to do this. I mean, when you look at this poster, probably a lot of thoughts come to mind. A lot of them probably are like, what? Um, but it was something that was valuable to them. The, 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 the government knew that letters were important for the soldiers to receive. In fact, we have a, a journal from a soldier during World War II. His name was Worth K. Baird. And in that journal that he has, he reveals how important receiving these letters were to him. Um, we have this, this journal in the American uh, Museum of, of History. And one of the things we see is, as people have written articles on this, is one of the questions they ask is, so why was mail such a priority for the army? For soldiers, letter writing wasn't just a hobby. Mail was often the only reminder a soldier had of life away from the battlefield. Baird, whose journal we have, uh, lived for letters from his beloved wife, saying, her letters do so much to pick me up. It's like a new spark of life. She's a sweet wife. What a thing to write in your journal. And what a thing to note of how important the words from this person he loved really were. In fact, this was such a big idea that in 1942, and I have a quote from this, in 1942, the annual report to the postmaster general writes this. uh, The post office, 
War and Navy departments realize fully that frequent and rapid communications with parents, associates, and other loved ones strengthens fortitude, enlivens patriotism, makes loneliness endurable, and inspires to even greater devotion the men and women who are carrying on our fight far from home and from friends. They realized that letters were significant because of the impact it had on the people who needed to hear them. These letters were an encouragement to those who were fighting, an encouragement to those who were in the battle day after day after day, that they could look forward to the fact that they would hear from the one who loves them and spur them on. And as we've been going through this series over these seven letters to these seven churches, that's the image that we need to have here. These are letters from Jesus to his churches, to his people, in the battle, day after day after day. And in these letters, he's encouraging them, he's warning them, he's inspiring them, he's motivating them. And God has chosen to keep these letters to give to us too. And so if you're someone here today, and in your faith, you need encouragement. You're in a place where you need to know some of that motivation. You need to be reminded of the one who loves you. Listen to this letter that has been saved for you. And if you're here today and you're trying to figure out, is this whole Christianity thing worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? And you're struggling and and you're trying to figure this out. Hear these words that Jesus has for you. As we go through these letters, these are important. These are the words of God to us here today to encourage us as we live out our faith. And we need to value them and treasure them just as those soldiers did back during World War II. And so as we walk through this passage, there's a few things I think we can see that really show us where this encouragement comes from. There are things I want to bring our attention to in this text that I think are important for us to know as we continue to live out our faith and really see Jesus' love for us. It starts right in the first verse that we went through. And the first thing that we're going to see here is that Jesus invites us to know him. How encouraging is that? That Jesus calls us to know him and to know him deeply. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus is writing a letter. He's giving a message to this church. And he begins the same way anybody who would write a letter does, by introducing himself, by reminding the church who's writing to them. This is something we often overlook, but it's incredibly important for us to understand this about Jesus, is Jesus makes himself known to us and invites us to know him. This is what Jesus does here. He writes this letter and says, this is who I am. I want you to know this about me. I want to introduce myself to you. And this isn't just in this letter. This is what God does over and over and over again. We have these words. We have the scripture because God reveals himself to us. He invites us to know him. He's made himself knowable for us. And this is what the gospel is all about. Even though we've separated ourselves from God, even though we're far from God, he sent his son So that through Christ and his death and resurrection, we would know him. 
if you're here today and you're looking for that encouragement, if you want that motivation to keep going, the first thing you need to see here is that the God who created everything is the God who loves you and invites you to know him personally. He doesn't just send instructions or a pamphlet of things to do and not to do. He begins by introducing himself to the people that he loves, by revealing himself to them. And just that act alone is incredible. But in this introduction that he gives to the church in Pergamum, we actually learn something significant about him. Uh, Alan F. Johnson, in his commentary, he writes this. It is interesting that Pergamum was a city to which Rome had given the rare power of capital punishment, which was symbolized by the sword. When we're talking about Pergamum here, we're talking about a significant city in now Turkey, but a significant city in the empire of Rome, one where that city has been given the power to execute people. That's something most cities didn't have. Capital punishment was done through Caesar, through Rome. But here, this city has been given that power because of their significance. And because of that, their symbol was the sword. So that when they sent messages to people, everyone would be reminded of how powerful and significant they are. People would know about the city. It was a, a it was a terrifying city. When you walked up to it, it was this big hill, and at the top of the hill was this huge altar. And when you would come from the south and you would look at the city, it would look like a giant throne. They had black buildings everywhere, black stone. It was powerful, but the most powerful thing was they could end your life if they didn't like you. But here, when Jesus introduces himself, he says, I want you to know me. This is the reminder of who he is that he gives. He's the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He's the one who's the most powerful. He's the one with all of the authority. It's not Pergamum. It's not Rome. It's Jesus. It's God. God is the, the, the ruler over everything. Even these cities, even these states, even these empires that look so intimidating, they're not the one who holds the sword that can do the most damage. They're not the ones who hold the most power. The one who has the most power is Jesus Christ. The one who holds the most power is the God who created them. And he's here speaking to you. And what I love about this image of the sword is it's not just power, but if you go back to Revelation 1, where you start to get these characteristics that are given to these churches, that two-edged sword is in his mouth. It's his tongue. It's the truth. And so, and so in Jesus, we have all of this power, and all of this power comes from the truth. That's who he is. What he says is true. You can trust his words. You can come to know him because in him is all authority and all truth. And so he calls them to come, hear these words. The one with power, the one with authority, the one with the truth is speaking to you. He loves you so much he's come to you. But it continues. Not only does Jesus invite us to know him, what we see in this letter is that Jesus knows our victories. Jesus knows the good things that we've done. He writes to them, I know where you dwell, right? I know where you live. I know what you're surrounded by, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, 
even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus knows them. He knows them deeply. He's seen them. He's seen how they live. And he's proud of them. He says, I know the circumstances of your life. I know you're in this big, powerful city. He even calls that city, remember how I said it looked like a throne? He calls it Satan's throne. And there's all kinds of reasons why this specific place would be referred to as Satan's throne. It's full of idolatry. It's full of, of uh, temples to Athena, to Dionysus, uh, an altar to Zeus at the top of that hill. There's even a, a temple to um, Asclepius, the, the, the savior god that they believed in Roman and Greek mythology, the one who would bring healing, whose very symbol is a snake. When, when people would see that on the coins or on the, the temples, what a reminder to Christians of this is Satan's throne. All of the, the pagan worship that is happening there. They, they had a library in Pergamum that had over 200,000 scrolls in it. It was the second biggest library in the entire world, only beaten by the library in Alexandria. This is a place where thought was important and free-flowing. So you have this worship, you have the, these ideas and ideologies going around. But the biggest thing, and probably the, the reference to this idea of this is Satan's throne, is Pergamum was the center of the emperor cult worship. Leon Morris, he writes, uh, the city was the center of the emperor cult for the whole province. And as this was a constant source of persecution to the Christians, we need not doubt that it was primarily in mind. See, Pergamum is the first place that ever built a temple to an emperor who was still living. They did that in 29 BC. They built a temple to Augustus. And by the time this letter is written, there's actually three temples in Pergamum, all dedicated to worshiping Caesar and Rome. And in Pergamum, remember, they've been given the right to kill people. In Pergamum, if you do not acknowledge that Caesar is Rome, it meant at best they were going to steal your stuff. And at worst, you'd be put to death. And Jesus is saying, I, I see you, church, in Pergamum. I see you living in that climate, in that culture. He says, you hold fast my name. This idea of you cling to me and will not let me go. The idea of a, a child who is terrified clinging to their parent or their loved one for safety and protection. And even though you try to shake them off, they just won't let go of you. You hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. We know nothing about this guy in history. I've looked everywhere. We know nothing about this guy other than the fact that he was killed for being a Christian. And what Jesus is saying is, even when they're killing people like you, who follow me, who claim me as the one and true God, you're staying true to my faith. You won't deny my name. You won't turn your back on me, even though they're killing you. 
I know where you live. I know what you're going through. Isn't that a wonderful message for us? That Jesus sees the good that we're doing. That Jesus sees the victories that we have, the big ones and the little ones. That he knows us that deeply. Even the victories that we don't notice, that we don't give ourselves credit for, Jesus sees those. And he says to the people, good job. Keep going. I'm proud of you. To know that our God, our Savior, is proud of us for the ways that we stay true to him. For the ways that we follow him. For being willing to to go out there and, and praise his name and preach his gospel. For all the little things you do for the Lord, he sees those things. To know that our God in heaven is proud, that is significant. Imagine the encouragement that would be to these people. Their willingness to keep going and keep at it because Jesus sees them and thanks them. That's the same encouragement that we have here today. The the letter to this church continues, though. Not only does Jesus invite us to know him, not only does Jesus know the good things that we do in our victories, but what we see here is Jesus knows our failures. And this is actually an encouragement. If you read through this carefully, notice what Jesus actually says to these people, starting in verse 14 here. But I have a few things against you, right? I'm proud of you. You're doing great. Keep going. But there's some things to work on here. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you uh, soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus knows our failures. He knows our weaknesses. He knows all the areas that we fall short. He says, you have been strong. You do not deny my name, even in the face of immense persecution. But there's people in your church who are are following the teachings of, of Balaam, the Balaamites, and the Nicolaitans. And... This is something scholars have, have done a lot of work on, and, and likely these two groups are either very closely related, if not the same group. The name Balaam and Nicolaitan, it means the same thing, conqueror of people. Um, and so very likely these are two related groups here. And what Jesus is saying to the people is, there's nothing anyone can do to you to tell, uh, for you to tell them you're not a Christian. There's nobody here denying me, denying knowing me. There's no one turning their back on the church. But what you have done is you've let the culture seep in. You've let the culture come into the church. And so you hold strong to my name, but you don't live the way I'm calling you to live. There are some among you that you tolerate who are bringing in these pagan ideas you've let the ideas and and practices of Pergamum seep in to the church. You see, N.T. Wright writes, um, the problem in Pergamum is that much of the church has lost its cutting edge, its ability to say no to the surrounding culture. So they'll say no to the idea of Caesar is Lord. 
I follow Jesus alone. But they're not willing to say no to living the way the people around them are living. And the, the real sense of the issue here is this idea of idolatry and, and sexual immorality. And, and Jesus uses here the, the teachings of Balaam. He's referencing uh, Numbers 25. This idea of Balaam, who, who the, this king, Balak, hires Balaam to curse Israel, and God won't let him, right? Most of you probably know the story of the talking donkey, um, which my youth leader when I was in high school made me act out and made me be the donkey so he could call me a bad word in front of all the kids. That's not how we treat this passage. Um, but this idea, we, we often know the story. Balaam tried to curse Israel. God wouldn't let him. Uh, but Balaam still wanted the reward from Balak. And so instead, he says, well, if we can't curse them directly, uh, let's get the ideas of the surrounding culture into their, their people and call them away from God. This is what Numbers 25 says. Uh, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the, sacri- uh, to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Balaam said, well, we can't curse them. And so instead, um, let's seduce them. Let's, let's try to entice them with the way that we live, the things that we do. Let's entice them with the people that we have. And so Israel, they didn't change their name. They didn't stop calling themselves the people of God. They didn't stop following God in name but they started to capitulate in the way that they're living. They started to allow all of these ideas into their lives. They started worshiping these other gods. They started sacrificing to other gods. They started to become like the cultures around them instead of what God originally called them to do when he chose Abraham, uh, to live a life that would call others to God. They've started to live the life of those around them and stop following God. And Jesus is saying, that's who you've become. You've become those people of God. You've, you've, you've given up actually following me. You don't trust that my way is the best way for you anymore. And he sees the wrong things that they're doing. And this might not seem like an encouragement, but I want you to think about this practically. He he points out their wrongdoings and then he says, repent, come back. He doesn't point out the wrongdoing and say, I'm going to destroy you. He doesn't point out the wrongdoing and say, okay, so there's no coming back to me. He points out their wrongdoing so that they can see it with their own eyes. They can change, turn directions and come back to the God who loves them. Come back to the God who knows them and has called them to know him in return. It's, it's an encouragement because Jesus sees everything they're doing wrong and still wants them to be with him. He says, this is, these are your faults. These are all the areas that you are far from me, and I want you to change them because I'm here waiting for you. Repent. Come back to me. How great to hear from God directly. These are the areas in your life that you need to work on that are bringing you destruction and chaos. 
He shows it to them. We have a God who knows us so deeply that he knows all of our failures, even the failures that we're not aware of yet. And we have an invitation to come to him, to pray and ask him to reveal the areas that are short in our lives that need to change so that we can follow him more closely. And we have a God who sees all of the wrong that we've done. It doesn't cast us to the side, doesn't destroy us, but gives us an invitation to return to him. Gives us an invitation to live better, to experience better. In Jesus, we have a Savior who knows us in every good thing we do and every bad thing that we do and calls us to be with him. And the other thing that we see as we read through this letter is Jesus knows our battles. See, we often go through life and, and we're hit with these trials and, and these struggles and these things that are going on and it feels overwhelming. But while we're going through that, what we see here is Jesus knows everything we're going through. Jesus knows all of the things that are against us. And in this letter, you see he knows that Satan is at work in that community around them. He says, I know you're living where Satan lives. I know you're living in, in his throne room. Jesus knows the, the lies and the culture and the lies in their heads of Satan trying to pull people away from God. He knows the persecution and the circumstances that these people are going through, what they're living through. These are not new things to Jesus. He knows them already. He knows the influences that are seeping into the church. He knows everything these people are going through. He knows everything they've gone through. He knows everything these people are going to go through. How comforting that we worship a God who knows all of the darkest, deepest, most overwhelming things that we're going to face in life. Who knows our greatest enemy. Knows Satan, knows death deeply. And we get to come to him. Ask him for strength. Ask him for wisdom because he knows every battle we're going to face. And more important than that, he's already given us victory over them. Jesus doesn't just know these battles. He's already conquered these battles. He's already beaten these battles. He's already gone to the cross and conquered death. He's already gone to the cross and taken away the lies of Satan. He's already gone to the cross to show us how much better his love is for us than the world around us and all the, the privileges and things that they use to entice us. Jesus is that double-edged sword that is the power and the truth. John Stott, in his commentary, talks about this fact that there are all these battles around us. And he says, God's way to overcome error is the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, which is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Falsehood will not be suppressed by the gruesome methods of the Inquisition or by the burning of heretics at the stake or by restrictive legislation. Ideas will not be overcome by force. Only truth can defeat error. The false ideologies of the world can be overthrown only by the superior ideology of Christ. We have no weapon other than this sword. We must use it fearlessly. 
in that, though, do you hear that heart of Jesus has already conquered? We have the weapon that's already going to win. We have the better sword. Remember, this is a place with that huge library. This is a place where thought was going around as currency, where there were ideologies being discussed in every corner of that city, where there were lies and promises made each and every day to everybody in that city. But here's Jesus who knows that, who knows the battles, who knows our enemies, and who is that powerful double-edged sword who is the truth, who cuts through all of that. And what he says to these people, therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will conquer all of our battles, conquer all of our enemies. He's already given us victory, but one day he will return, and when he does, he will bring the truth that no one can deny, and he will eliminate all of the lies, all of the enemies, all of the battles. They will be gone because Jesus is the truth, and he is the power, and he is our Savior. And so as we read through this letter, we see that Jesus invited us to know him, to know him deeply. He knows our good, he knows our bad, he loves us, and he knows the battles that we're going through, and we can turn to him. And then he gives us one last reason for encouragement. A reason that surpasses anything any of us in this room would ever dream of. Jesus knows our reward. He says... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the one who has an ear, let him hear. To anyone who's willing to push through that persecution, to anyone who's willing to follow me through those lies, who, to anyone who's willing to trust that I have conquered your greatest battles, that through my death and through my resurrection, Satan has no hold on you. Death has no claim on you. That through me, there is life and life to the fullest, the way you were meant to live, to worship the one true God for all of eternity. For those of you who are willing to hear and follow me, take what these words say and trust them, and put them into action in your life. To the one who conquers, to the one who follows Jesus in his victory, there's a reward for you. And it's this. There's some hidden manna, and you get to be part of eating that. You get some of the hidden manna. This is an idea that um, the, the manna that was given to the people during the, the time of their exodus in the wilderness where God would feed them every day, give them what they needed to survive, that God himself cared for his people. And some of that manna was put in a jar and, and put with the ark. And the Jewish people believed that, that one day when the Messiah comes, that manna would be brought out again and they would eat that manna with the Messiah. Jesus says, to them who hear and follow me, to those who conquer with me, you get to eat that manna. You get to eat that bread of God with the Messiah. 
with Jesus, the one who saved us. And in fact, if you go to John uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 30, this is what Jesus says. We have this interaction where he's teaching. And it says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, um, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Not only do we get to know Jesus, we get to have Jesus. That is our reward for following him. That is our reward for accepting the love of the one who knows us more than anyone could ever know us, more than we know ourselves, is we get to have the bread of life. We get that secret secret hidden manna. We get to have Jesus. We will be sustained by him for all of eternity. He will give us anything we ever need. He will care for us and be with us, and we will be with him. That is the reward for following him. Even though this church has not been perfect, even though Jesus has clearly shown them, you have followed the world and not followed me. Repent and come back to me and I will be yours and you will be mine. You will have some of that hidden manna where you will eat with me for all of eternity. But not only do they get the the hidden manna, he says, I will give him a stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. They get this white stone. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are at least 12 theories that this stone, what this stone could be. Um, There are all kinds of things. Like it's a a reference to the umim and thumim that the, the high priest would wear. Or it was a reward at the end of a race or all kinds of things. Likely, I believe, in the reference to the, the eating the, God, the food sacrifice to, to idols and the, the sexual immorality, um, the way that would work is people would be invited to these parties and they would receive an invitation on a white stone. And so likely, I believe, the most reasonable explanation for what this white stone is, is it's an invitation to a banquet. It's an invitation to a feast. It's, it's a promise from Jesus that says, if you're willing to give up all of those other feasts you're invited to, if you're willing to give up all of those rewards that the culture and the world around you are, are promising you if you turn your back on me, there's a better feast waiting for you that's more fulfilling than any feast you could have here. One that never ends. One where you'll never thirst or be hungry again. One where you'll, you'll never be lonely again. One that you never have to leave because the, the feast is with God in heaven. The, the one who conquers and, and follows Jesus receives an invitation to the banquet that lasts for eternity at the Father's table. And on that invitation is a new name. And again, it's Revelation. Everything in Revelation is confusing. Um, it's just the way it is. Uh, don't read Revelation until you read Daniel, by the way. Um, everything in Revelation is confusing. What is this new name? Is it your new name or is it Jesus' new name? Some people would argue that this is Jesus' new name. He's revealed a new name to you. 
so that you can know him better. He's revealed his new name to you so that you can know his power. There's an idea in the ancient world that if you could know someone's name and you could say it, you had power over them. This is part of the whole Egyptian worship of gods that you have. You have these gods battling with each other and trying to find the, the superior god's real name so that they can have power. And here, it's, it's Jesus just gives you his name so that you can know him and you can receive the power that he's given you. Or is it your new name? You've been given a new name, a new identity. You're no longer that person who, who followed the, the ways of the world and, and needed to be called back in repentance. You're no longer that person who's made all of those mistakes. That's not who you are. Who you are is this new name that Jesus has forgiven you. It's an invitation to be a child of God, to know that you are saved and redeemed, that you belong to him. And the reality is it's probably elements of both of those things on this new name. And the idea here is intimacy. There's a name that, that you and, and, and he know alone. There's a relationship, a bond there. I remember working at camp as a, a teenager, and every single camper wanted to know every single leader's real name because when they found out that real name, they felt like they knew them better that there's a closer relationship. And so they would try anything. They would try to trick you. They'd try to ask other people. If your parent came to pick you up from work, they would ask your parents because they wanted to know that name. And here Jesus is saying, listen, if you conquer, if you follow me, if you have an ear to hear, you get me. You get that hidden manna. I will sustain you for all of eternity. And you get a name that you and I only know. A secret bond between the two of us that draws us closer together. Alan F. Johnson says, It seems best to link the stone to the thought of the manna and see it as an uh, allusion to an invitation that entitled its bearer to attend one of the pagan banquets. But instead of this pagan banquet, we get to be in the banquet of heaven for all of eternity. To be with the God who knows us so deeply, he even knows our secret name, who's revealed his name to us. If you're here today and, and, and you've been flat for a while, your, your faith has seemed like it's just something that's dried up. If, if God has seemed distant and far to you, if you're someone here today who's never really approached Jesus and come to know him, hear these words today. Understand that Jesus has come to you so that you would know him. Understand that he's seen all of the good you've done and he's proud of you. Understand that he knows all of the wrongdoing that you've done and he loves you and calls you to be with him. Know that he sees every battle, every struggle you've gone through and will go through. But most importantly, know that he's called you to be with him for eternity. That on the cross, through his death and resurrection, through his life eternally, he's given you that invitation to sit with him at the feast that never ends. Go to the last slide here. This is my last words for you. Would you be encouraged by the words of Jesus who knows you fully, loves you completely, and gave his life so that you could be with him eternally? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are. 
There's no other way to say that. We thank you for everything about you, Father. We thank you that although we've run from you and although we've been far from you, you've come to us. We thank you that you sent your son so that we would know you and see you. We thank you that you know us fully and love us more than we could ever imagine. That you are calling us to yourselves, to yourself because you want relationship with us. We thank you that you sent your son to bear the cross, to give us life at the table. And I pray that each of us here would see that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.